Okay, well, good evening. How's everyone? Awesome. Good to see you guys. Welcome to our Good Friday service here at First Calling Christian Church. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and we're glad that you have joined us on Good Friday, which is the day that the church sets aside each year to remember the death of Jesus on the cross, which stands as a central event to the faith that we hold uh, as Christians. And so we're actually in the middle of a seven-year series here at First Calling Christian Church, a Good Friday series. Uh, which is the longest I've ever planned out anything in my entire life. Uh, so there's, as Jesus dying on the cross, as you look through the, the four Gospels and, and, and read their accounts of Jesus dying on the cross, what you'll find is they record seven different sayings of Jesus on the cross, seven different sentences that he utters as he's hanging there on the cross right before he dies. And so we've, we've started a process on each Good Friday of going through and, and looking at the, the various sayings of Jesus on the cross. And so... Four years ago, we, we talked about, hopefully you all, if you were here, remember this perfectly. <laughs> we talked about the, uh, the statement of Jesus where he says, my God, my God, why have you, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and then three years ago, we, we looked at uh, Jesus saying to the, the thief next to him, remember Jesus was crucified with, with two people, one on his left, one on his right. And he, he says to one of the thieves, today, truly I tell you, you'll be with me in paradise. And then last year, we looked at uh, Jesus' statement where he, he forgives the people who are crucifying him. Which, as I'm reading the story again this week, it just strikes me as one of the most astounding things I've ever read in my life. As Jesus is being crucified, he's forgiving the people who are nailing, nailing the nails into his hand, putting up on that cross. I mean, that's just such, a, such an amazing, amazing, amazing event that happens and in, in, in that... I think communicates a lot to us. So today we're going to look at uh, another one of Jesus' sayings. Um, and, and it's the saying where he's on the cross where he says, I thirst. Okay, and so we'll read John chapter 19. I'll read it for you. John 19, we'll pick it up in verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a school, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what you see here in this, this passage is that Jesus is thirsty. On the cross, he expresses this, 
this thirstiness that he's experiencing, and he, he actually receives a drink here um, from, from the uh, people around him as he's, he's been crucified. And upon receiving that drink, he, he dies. He says, it's finished, and he dies. And, and we, we see Jesus express, again, this, this sense of thirst, and we wonder why he wouldn't be thirsty, right? I mean, it, it seems fairly obvious why Jesus would be thirsty. He's had an eventful last few hours. Uh, he has had um, some very physically tolling events uh, take place. Uh, he's been um, beaten. He's been uh, made to, to walk a long distance. And in fact, dehydration is one of the, the common ways people would die being crucified. Okay, you've lost a large amount of blood. Uh, it's a very traumatizing experience. Um, and so you, you go through this slow process of dehydrating to the point of death. And Jesus expresses his thirst um, in I think many of us would wonder what more there is to say, right? Jesus is on the cross. He's thirsty. Of course he's thirsty. He expresses that desire, and then he, he dies. In fact, that's the reaction I've gotten from many people upon the, the question of, what are you preaching for this Good Friday? I'm like, well, I'm going to talk about Jesus saying I'm thirsty on the cross. I'm like, okay, that's a, what, three-minute sermon, four-minute sermon, five-minute sermon. Um, but I, I want to suggest that there perhaps is more for us to to think about and dwell on as we see Jesus saying this, I want to, to first draw us into the mystery that Christians call the incarnation, which is that in the person of Jesus, God himself has become human, has dwelt among us. I want to perhaps suggest tonight that when you see Jesus saying and expressing his thirst, saying, I thirst, we're in fact seeing God expressing his thirst. We're seeing perhaps what we might call the thirsty God. Which at once seems like a contradiction in terms, right? I mean, how could we possibly talk about God himself being thirsty? About the second person of the Trinity experiencing this physical kind of agony, this suffering, this thirst. And, and so what, what a lot of people would want to do here, and I've, I've heard this done over and over again, is they would say this, well, well, this is the human part of Jesus that's thirsty, right? You, you want to separate out kind of the divine part of Jesus and the human part of Jesus, uh, and so, I mean, you'll actually hear this quite a bit, I think, if you, you listen to a large amount of preaching about the Gospels. You'll encounter a situation where Jesus maybe expresses the idea that he's tired. You'll say, obviously here you have the human part of Jesus that gets tired. God himself can't get tired, right? So this is the Jesus human who gets tired. And then when Jesus uh, disappears among people or performs this miracle, we say, obviously this is the God part of Jesus, right? Obviously, humans can't do these kind of things, but God can. This is the God part of Jesus. And in this sense, we, we try to separate out so that it doesn't get messy and mysterious, right? We separate out the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. In fact, though, this is an early Christian heresy. This is one of the things that would have gotten you kicked out of the church early on, to try to separate out uh, Jesus' humanity and divinity. And, and, and what many people do, what it creates is the schizophrenic Jesus, right? Who does some things as God, and then some things as a human, he can kind of turn it on and off like a light switch. Okay, it's this kind of double personality Jesus. Um, but, but the creeds and, and the early Christian confessions as they read the scriptures and worshipped was that Jesus, this man Jesus, this, this embodied person, Jesus of Nazareth, is fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man, so that you could kind of separate out what happens that in one and the same person dwells God and man, both 100% at the same time. So that what Jesus does as a person and says and experiences and accomplishes is experienced and accomplished by God and by man. 
the incarnation. It names this mystery. It's obviously not an easy formula to understand, but we can be sure as Christians that when we see Jesus doing or experiencing something, we're seeing God doing and experiencing something. This is the, the mystery of what it means to proclaim that Jesus is God incarnate, God enfleshed among us. On the cross, we see God thirsty, dehydrated, experiencing a slow and cruel death. The scriptures are, are going to be very clear about this. There's no, there's no remainder of God that doesn't exist in Jesus, with Jesus. There's not a, sometimes we, we try to imagine that surely because of what Jesus goes through, there's a part of God, what it means to be God, that's not there in Jesus. But the scriptures will say the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. There's no remainder in another person of the Trinity of what it means to be divine. On the cross, you see God himself thirsty, the thirsty God. As one author said, in Jesus' statement, I thirst, we confront again our desire to have a God that would not save us by a cross. We confront again our desire to have a God who wouldn't save us by a cross. We keep hoping that if the one who suffers on the cross is in some way connected to God, then there must be some remainder. There must be something saved and reserved that the God who thirsts will find a way to escape from the cross. But what we, we see as we read the stories is, is this was indeed how God came to bring salvation. God himself enters into our world of suffering. On the cross, Jesus is experiencing the climax of Israel's suffering. The suffering and pain and exile and slavery that Israel had experienced comes to its fulfillment in Jesus on the cross and, and God himself on the cross. And, and you see the climax of humanity's suffering. A world full of thirst and hunger and evil and war and sin. You see the experience by the one we call God. You see, I think, a, a thirsty God. Now some perhaps understanding that, that this doctrine of the incarnation would indeed suggest that God himself is thirsty here on the cross. Have suggested, obviously, then, Jesus is not talking about physical thirst. Okay, this is also a metaphorical statement. Something much deeper is going on. Don't worry about this physical experience of thirst. Okay, Jesus is expressing a deeper um, spiritual reality. I would, I would acknowledge here. I think if you read John carefully, there is more going on when Jesus says, "I thirst." What I would suggest, though, tonight, and I, I hope you can follow me on this, is, is that while I think there is more going on, more sense to this statement, "I thirst." It builds off of this physical, literal, plain reading that Jesus thirsts. So here's what I mean, okay? As you read through the Gospel of John, what you'll find is that eating and drinking are commonly used, very commonly used in the Gospel of John as these kind of spiritual, spiritual references. And in particular, drinking, okay, and thirst is often used to express a spiritual experience, a transcendent experience, something that goes beyond the physical, an experience of hungering and desiring and longing for the presence of God. So in John chapter 4, if you'll remember this, Jesus is traveling with the disciples and they enter a town in Samaria. And Jesus gets tired. And he sends the disciples on into town to, to get some food for him and bring it back to him. I once heard someone say, the only person without a Messiah complex is the Messiah. Okay? <laughs> This is not common among guys to be walking with a group of your buddies. Like, I'm tired. Y'all go get me something. 
Okay, I'm just gonna chill here. I'm gonna sit here. But Jesus just goes, you know what? I can't keep walking. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna relax here. Y'all give me a sandwich. All right, bring it back. I'll remain here. While he's there at a well, a, a Samaritan woman comes, a, a woman who has had a kind of shady past, and he enters into a conversation with her, and he actually tells her, "Will you please give me a drink?" And in conversation with her, if you'll remember, he he starts talking about a a kind of more spiritual drink that he has to offer. He says, if you knew who you were talking with, you'd actually ask me for a drink. And I would give you, he says, living water. I'd give you living water that would satisfy you, that would fulfill your thirst. And he says this to her in in chapter 4, verse 13. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, his living water, will never be thirsty again. Everyone who drinks the water that I can offer will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Again, this this idea of thirst and water is used to express this desire and need for God's presence and his life, his salvation. And Jesus says, I've come to offer that. I've come to offer that. As we keep reading, if we we were reading through the Gospel of John, we'd find in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We would keep reading. We'd find in chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus saying this, If anyone does thirst, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, Jesus is not talking about physical thirst here. He's talking about this sense of longing for God's presence and longing for God's life. And he says, if that characterizes your soul, your state of being, if you're thirsty, come find satisfaction in me. Which I think makes it even more interesting that on the cross, the one who has told people he will give them water that will satisfy them says he's thirsty. It's unexpected. He's thirsty, this, the same one who's told the woman at the well that, that he can give her water that, that will satisfy her, that, that she'll never thirst again. He has this unending supply, and yet he seems to run out on the cross. He, he seems to be thirsty. He seems, in a sense, to be experiencing what he has acknowledged others in the world have been experiencing, that he's come to, to fix, to satisfy I think an answer, I think, I think what's happening here uh, might come as we, as we look closer to uh, this actual event of Jesus on the cross. If, if we were in chapter 18, we'd read this in, in, in verse 11. Jesus says this, uh, talking about what will happen on the cross. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Watch how the metaphor changes here of, of drinking and, and thirst. Here, the drink is the work that the Father has given Jesus, particularly the work of laying down his life. Jesus, when given the option of fighting so that he won't go to the cross, says this, Shan't I, I, I drink the cup that the Father has for me? Won't I fulfill the, the work that he's laid out for me to bring life, to bring eternal life into creation? And when we see Jesus on the cross, John would want us to not see a human being caught up in something larger than himself. On the cross, if we read John's gospel very closely, Jesus is not a tragic figure who has found himself in a situation far out of his control. In chapter 10, Jesus says this, verse 17 and 18, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, Jesus says. 
well before this experience. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. In chapter 14, Jesus says this, I will no longer talk with you much, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the father. John would have us see Jesus on the cross expressing his direct will. He lays down his life. No one takes it from him. This isn't some tragic accident that Jesus didn't foresee and Jesus has no control over. This is a thought-out expression of giving as Jesus hangs on the cross. Again, you see, I think, in that chapter uh, 14 reference that what Jesus is involved in here and, and what we see happening on the cross is a cosmic struggle. It's a cosmic experience, battle. He says, the ruler of this world is coming for me and I'll lay down my life for him. Sometimes... When, when you and I reflect on the cross, we perhaps put so much emphasis on the personal. Jesus died for me. That we, we miss out on the much larger accomplishment that's happening, which makes the personal an option for us. Which enables us to experience those personal benefits. On the cross, there is this struggle between God in a creation gone wrong. There's this God who has committed himself to rescuing creation, a creation that's enslaved, a creation that is under the stranglehold of evil itself. And Jesus, realizing this is why he has come to bring eternal life to this creation, the presence and life of God himself, says, the hour is approaching and I go to lay down my life. Jesus is fully aware of what's happening on the cross and he's made the choice to lay down his life, to experience the darkness of the world, to experience the evil and suffering that characterizes the world. And if we were to go back to our text again and read in chapter 28, or chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says this, or it's, the text says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said... Parentheses, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Many, I think, read past this awkward and clumsy introduction to Jesus' statement. John gives us Jesus' statement of thirst. And it's interesting, John gives us this on purpose, right? When you're telling a story, there are things you include and things you don't include. John doesn't tell us Jesus was tired. He doesn't tell us that Jesus' left hand hurt in particular. He doesn't tell us all these different things about Jesus. But he does tell us that Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And in so doing, as a way of introduction to telling us this, he, he goes out of his way in this, this very awkward, long introduction to say that Jesus knew all that was happening, all that was finishing. And he consciously knew that he was fulfilling the scriptures. And he says, I thirst. What if we were to read Jesus' statement of I thirst as his desire to drink the cup that the Father had for him? His statement would perhaps then not be one of torment, but of commitment. I thirst. I thirst to drink this cup, to finish the work laid out for me, to fulfill the scriptures, the plan of God to rescue creation. He was thirsty to drink. But to drink what? To drink the cup that the Father had given him. 
It was the desire to do the Father's will, to be the instrument of the Father's love in breaking into creation and defeating evil. But watch what happens. That work involves suffering. It involves a cost. It involves God himself coming into creation and bearing the weight of what's gone wrong so that his people may be freed, that his people may receive life. Notice that this would not then be a less than a literal physical understanding of Jesus as thirsty. It'd be more. Is Jesus expressing a, a physical thirst for waters? Is God so doing that? Yes, because that was a part of the cup the Father had laid out for Jesus to accomplish. As he experiences the weight and evil and suffering of the world, so that again, eternal life may break into creation. And that you and I would be invited Invited to drink and to be satisfied. As we dwell on Jesus' crucifixion tonight, might it be that indeed we're seeing the thirsty God quenching our thirst on the cross. Psalm 42, 1-2 says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I think many of us have that same experience, can, can resonate with that statement. Indeed, the world can, can resonate with that statement. We thirst for God. We thirst for His peace and His joy and His wisdom and His righteousness. We, we have this intense longing to experience life, eternal life, the life of heaven. And not in this future sense, but to experience it now, to experience it in Sugarland, Texas in 2013. Might it be that God's answer to the psalmist's question in Psalm 42, when can I drink? When can I be satisfied? When can I come before God? Might God's answer be the body and blood of Christ? Might this be how God brings his living water into the world through his own suffering? I'd like to end with a quote from from an author named Stanley Hauerwas. He says this, Our God, our thirsty God, is the one capable of saying to us, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. We now approach the table. We we participate in communion. We remember his, his crucifixion on our behalf. And and those who are thirsty are invited are invited to drink deeply, are invited to to experience the life that God has provided through Christ, through his sacrifice, and by the Spirit. Let's pray.